Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm back. (laughs) I'm Nick. (laughs) And I'm Ron. Not to be confused with Batman over there. (laughs) This is our review of Paranormal Activity, starring Katie Featherston and Mika Sloat. Directed by Oren Pelly. Made in 2007 for $15,000, released wide in 2009 with a little help from Steven Spielberg. This film grossed over $193 million worldwide. You know, they say, guys, that uh, New Line Cinema is the house that Freddie built, Blumhouse Productions, the home of Insidious, The Conjuring, Annabelle, Sinister, so many other things, even some TV shows. Well, Paranormal Activity is the house that built that. Now, Ron, you and I have seen these before. Nick, you're new to this, and I drug you in here because of the Blair Witch tie-in that we'll get to in a minute. But, Ron, I wanted to kind of start with you, your introduction to Paranormal Activity. How would you find out about it? When did you first see it? Well, I have my wife to thank for that. Um, I had I had seen the commercials for it. I had been easily ended up coming to my town. I had either skipped it or forgotten about it. Uh, and then my... Before she was my wife, she made me buy the DVD, and we went and we watched it uh, on my dingy non-HD television, and immediately sucked right in to this whole universe. Yeah, I've never seen any of these in the theater, oddly enough. I caught on to this as a rental because I had heard all the buzz about it, ended up renting it one night, me and the wife both loved it, and subsequently we watched the rest of them at home because unlike a lot of films that I think, I, you know, you really need to see that in the theater to get the experience, I, I will actually argue Paranormal Activity is better when you watch it home alone. I would argue differently because I watched the first one at home and then I saw the rest of them in the movie theaters, and if you can get like the afternoon teenager showing or go to the uh, the, the ghetto movie theater, it's <laughs> a phenomenal awesomely fun experience well maybe for the experience but i think if you're trying to watch the movie and pay attention to any of it it might be better to do so at home but nick as i said in the intro there you're new to all of these this whole series but i wanted you in on it one because you're the newbie to it but also you and i did the blair witch thing and this these are found footage movies and we talked about how that first one in spite of its its flaws and it's got some it, it it held up and we both liked it that second one was a complete disaster and we both tore it apart for it so i wanted to get you in on this too but tell me and everybody else here you know how did you avoid paranormal activity or were you just not in a horror phase in 2009 i really wasn't in a horror phase at 2009 i can't i really haven't searched out any new horror movies uh, a lot of the new stuff that's come out over the years i've not really enjoyed. I think it's, you know, a lot of it's pretty hokey or, you know, too reliant on CGI where it really takes you out of the moment. Um, I think kind of like, you know, a good example would be like the, the new uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or mm. the new Jason movie. You know, I know those are all like remakes and stuff like that, but even like original ones, like I, don't know, I think I like Saw, those ones really wore out on me real quick and, you know, that was the whole phase and it kind of seemed like it went from like torture porn, porn to this found footage uh genre and i just kind of avoided it because i was so burned out on the torture porn that i was like yeah forget it i'll stick to my movies my go-tos are always like uh poltergeist um you know just the 80s flair a lot of cheesy 80s movies too which you know me and you have reviewed that i've always enjoyed (laughs) yeah schlocky 80s i think those are always my uh kind of go-to horror movies and even like stuff like the lost boys and everything i've always liked those but um yeah just you know I, i knew these came out i knew that there was a fan base behind it i remember when this one came out and I think the reason I didn't see it is uh, my uncle, he's a real big movie buff. He uh, films, and uh, I think it was like Christmas, right, when this came out or uh, after this came out. I asked him, I'm like, oh, you know, you hear about that paranormal activity movie? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that for a while. And he goes, yeah, it's a piece of shit. So I was just <laughs> like, oh, okay. And I just, just as him <laughs> saying that, you know, not that it's like, oh, you know, he's Jesus to me or something where I need to, like, follow everything that he says, but... I think that was just all I needed to hear to kind of stay away from it. And I don't know, just a lot of this found footage stuff. I mean, anytime I think of found footage, I'm thinking of like alien 
<laughs> or you remember that. Yeah. You know, like those, those are all kind of, I think then the basis of found footage was when they did like those like faux documentaries and I don't know, just kind of low budget fare. I was just, I don't know. I was more into, I don't even know what I was into when this came out. I don't know. A- acid. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I can understand why you would skip it. You mentioned a movie there in that, that mix of things, Poltergeist. I think a lot of these movies, particularly these haunting movies, owe a lot to that film. And, and, uh, Ron, we talked about that briefly when we did Annabelle, that there's, you know, Blumhouse certainly does a lot of those things. I happen to be a fan of a lot of Blumhouse stuff. And Paranormal Activity for me, though, kind of ranks below it. It wasn't a series I ever thought I'd want to review, but the more I've rewatched these and got into them, I, I you know, th- there's something to be said about found footage movies. When you, once you know the, the whole story, it's, do I want to sit through that again? And the one thing that this one, and I, I will say this series as a whole, just to telegraph some of my comments for future shows, it gets right is that they don't they don't shake a cameo to death. Like I think that's part of the found footage genre that that gets me. Like I like the story behind Cloverfield the movie, but there's about thirty minutes of that that it really makes me like vomit <laughs> to watch. And I don't oh, get that's, yeah Cloverfield I don't, forgot about that movie. <laughs> I don't I don't get uh, you know uh, motion sickness or anything like that much, but that one gives me a huge headache because it's just so. I don't know, just rattling to, to sit through and watch. And Blair Witch can, can do that to you as well. These films, I don't think, do that as much. They go with the conceit of the found footage. But I, one thing I will say about this series that's fun to me is always the conceit that they come up with as to why you're watching found footage. I always, you know, Blair Witch, it was, this is all we found of them. And I remember when this one came out and, you know, you see the the opening thing. It's like, we'd like to thank the families of these people for and the, and the San Diego County, you know, police department for their participation in this. So they tried to pitch this as if this was for real. But I think I, I think people are just wise to that now. They don't even play with that anymore. Can't do that. Yeah, not in the internet age. I just don't think that that the, works. The, 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 yeah, exactly. You know, all you got to do is just look up the person's name on there and see their IMDb profile or, yeah, they're still alive. You know, that's not real. So you really can't, you know, have that conceit anymore. And I think even like, you know, speaking of found footage, I totally forgot about Cloverfield. And I think there was even that uh, fourth kind piece of shit that came out with um, oh. Mila Jovovich. And uh, I did see those. And that was always kind of a thing that you brought up about the uh, – Achia was and just kind of like it, it does make you kind of nauseated it feels just kind of like a bad like uh you know if you ever go to like a mall of america or any type of big mall how they got those like um those rides you go into those like centrifuge rides and things like that yeah yeah exactly kind of like star tours at disney world and yeah. things like that always make me sick it's like i get pretty motion i get get motion sickness pretty easy <laughs> so i think that was also kind of the reason i stayed away from it and plus there was always uh the conceit about these people going horrific things and yet they keep on filming yeah i mean like in the blair witch where you know all this shit's going on and yet they're still filming <laughs> and it's like put the damn camera down dude you know just yeah there i do we'll get those problems with this movie but i think um you know we'll get into it but i think this one was a little bit more well done yeah orin Feli is a phenomenal like story to me um Basically how he shot this movie in seven days, he edited it as they shot it. He entered it into like one uh, horror movie film festival, got noticed by somebody at CAA who passed it on to Jason Blum, who then uh, CAA sent out to basically everyone in Hollywood, including, as the aforementioned, Steven Spielberg and the DreamWorks folks and Paramount Pictures. And instead of letting them take his movie and remake it with Hollywood actors, he told them to do a test screening and see how it played. So they did a test screening. They saw people getting up and leaving the test screening, but they weren't walking out because they were bored. They were walking out because they couldn't handle it. (laughs) Yeah, that's always a good sign. Yeah, basically, they just wanted to get a hold of it and, and do it a different way with him directing. Mm-hmm. But because he was insistent and he stuck to his guns and he had Jason Blum behind him, he got to actually become like a real Hollywood thing. I mean, yeah, it's it, what the most successful independent film of all time now, right? Like that, this is past Halloween and any of the others that were on that list. Blair Witch had, had passed Halloween at this point, but I think this beat Blair Witch because it was cheaper and. Made more money. That's the thing about horror movies that gets me. I, I grew up in the 80s and, and 
and watching horror movies and like your slasher films, I mean, they'd make them for four or five million dollars and they'd make 15, maybe 20. And that was considered a you know, huge success. I mean, the, I think the first three or four Friday the 13th each cost a million or less to make and they all made, you know, 20 million dollars. So, I mean, that kind of bank has always been what horror is for. But then horror movies went through a lot of different turns. I mean, you had things like Saw and Hostel, like you mentioned, Nick, and then you had stuff like, uh, you know, the, the, all the, the J-horror that got remade in America, The Grudge and The Ring and The Ring 2, and you talk about a bad sequel, by the way, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's a really terrible one with uh, Joshua Jackson called Shudder, by the way. I don't recommend anyone watch that, but uh, if, if, you're on, if you're on watching the Sci-Fi Network late at night and you got nothing better to do, there's an hour and a half of your life to throw away on him. But, but if, you, if you are a J-horror fan, feel free to Japanese 32. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and then tell yeah. us how it is. The Japanese versions generally are far superior to the American counterparts, but you had that that movement. And then, I don't know, horror has always been in this doldrum where ah, maybe there was something good happening, maybe there wasn't. But uh, th- to have something come out like this and where every installment is this massive blockbuster hit, but they are made so incredibly cheap. I, I It's rare to find a horror series that maintains that level, is what I'm, what I'm getting around to saying. I mean, these these movies are blockbusters, and partially because they're released usually at a time when they can really mop up and clean up, and I think part because that they've got something to say, and they're, they're pretty good. So uh, it can be fun. It's, it's rare to find a horror series that maintains that kind of momentum, uh, is the thing, though. They generally start to fall apart, you know, two or three episodes in. So I'd uh, be curious to see once we get into some of these, how that maintains. But before we get any further, I guess, Ron, you need to give us a plot summary. Tell us what paranormal activity is all about. Sure thing. Katie and Mika, not Micah, a young couple move into a new house in sunny San Diego, California, but not all is sunny behind closed doors for those two. Katie is being haunted by an evil presence, and Mika helpfully sets up a camera to catch any and all activity that occurs while they sleep, and possibly to film some sex tapes without Katie paying attention. Mika, being the skeptic, doesn't take this seriously, even as the camera continues to catch strange events during the night. Unexplained noises, flickering lights, moving doors, demonic screeching, and Katie in a trance state standing standing by the bed for hours, not moving, just staring and breathing. Even when Mika's Ouija board catches fire, he refuses to call the demonologist in for help. Thought to be lost in a house fire. Things only get weirder. Demons drag Katie down a hallway, leave mysterious bite marks on her back, and generally behave menacingly. Fed up, Mika tells Katie that they're staying in a hotel, and surprisingly, Katie snaps back to normal. The next night, Katie again does her statue impression for a few hours while Mika sleeps. Then she goes downstairs. A screaming human, a screaming demon, rushing footsteps, and a dead body is violently hurled at the camera. In the doorway is Katie, who crawls to the camera, grins, and gives us one last good jump scare before we cut to black and are rewarded with more faux reality text. Guys, let's talk about the whole found footage thing and we've all seen found footage movies what makes this one different than some of the other ones you've seen ron uh even though they're basically improving the whole movie they they seem to have a pretty good chemistry with one another and i like that it avoids most of the perils of the found footage like you mentioned the grabbing the camera and running around with it yeah nick what about you Oh, well, I think it kind of starts off pretty good with, um, you know, he buys this new camera and basically he's just kind of screwing around with it. I mean, he bought it for the obvious reasons, which were brought up in the plot summary. But, you know, in the whole beginning of it, it's, you know, he's just kind of screwing around with it, you know, just kind of being the typical boyfriend with it. And I kind of, you know, the whole reason for buying it, too, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a logical reason where, you know, his girlfriends, you know, she's having these type of, you know, experiences at night and they want to see kind of, what's going on probably just for him just to kind of show nothing's going on so he can kind of throw it back in her face a little bit but yeah i mean i guess just nowadays i mean it is kind of weird actually seeing someone with a camcorder yeah i mean it's it's a big like heavy duty camera he's got a nice one anybody buy i mean that was the thing too yeah 
That was a big one. I mean, that was like something you probably see out of the 80s or something you see in a movie set nowadays. But Well, she comments on this, and I actually am going to say that the thing that makes this different is how much of a part of the characters that it is. It's like the Blair Witch. The reason they had cameras was they were a film crew, so it made sense for them to have all that equipment around. Mika, as we find out, is a day trader, which means he works at home and, and you know makes a few trades a day, and then he basically screws around the rest of the day. I mean, that's that's not what all day traders do. That's what he does. Okay, and that's what we're kind of led to believe he does. Katie's still in college trying to, oh, what is she, an English major with a Spanish minor or something like she's going to teach? I don't know. Just trying to figure out what she she's going to be paying off those student loans for the rest of her life. <laughs> or or maybe, 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 maybe Mika's already done that. I don't know. You know, he seems to be pretty well. But she mentions in, you know, just dropped lines here and there, and you can kind of see it around their house. He has a strange fascination with electronics. Like he's he's got an electric guitar, he's got amps, he's got phones, he's always playing with something. And in 2007, and we, we got to remember this movie came out in 2009. We watched it in 2015. Our lives are so electronic now. But in 2007, that hadn't completely taken over the way that it is now. And you can see that in their life. They have a very modern house in San Diego, and I like the fact that that he bought this as. Two reasons. One, because he wants to see what his girlfriend's freaking out about. But two, because he really wanted the badass camera. And I mean, I think the first thing she says about it is, what happened to the little handy cam thing? And he, he's got this you know, professional production camera that he's holding up in front of her. I, I'm sure you guys are the same way. It's like you go right to the TVs. You're looking at the biggest and the newest TV there, and you're kind of like, oh, it'd be nice to get then. I think he's just that type of guy where it's, you know, he's still kind of, you know, in this bachelor stage where he's got a lot of disposable income. You know, they're, they're you know, dinks, you know, dual income, no kids. And, you know, he just wants to have some fun with his money. And I could totally see someone like him, you know, just kind of over-investing in something. You know, something he's probably going to use probably for the next, you know, prove to her that nothing's going on. And then probably just, you know, end up in the back of the closet until they get married or some shit. Right. I, what is, I think he says something to the effect of, like, we're engaged to be engaged, and she kind of gives him this look, you know, but they're still they're still together in the same house. But I will say this, though. This is the other thing. And he's, and he's kind of a dude. I mean, he's kind of your typical California douche, too. I, I guess so. But I, I want to say this, though, besides the fact that he says his name all wrong, because I would I would call that Micah all the way. I matter of fact, I thought that Micah's a girl name. It's just a different way of doing it. But but whatever. I will say that the, one of the things that really works about this film is the fact that these two are good at playing off of one another as if they've been a couple for three or four years like they're supposed to have been. I think they, they it's not only just chemistry, like they are good at bantering with one another. I totally buy the relationship. I mean, they do seem like they've been together for a while. They're obviously comfortable with each other, and I think it really shows between them that, you know, that they, they have a pretty good uh, comfort level with each other as opposed to, you know, some movies you see and you know kind of like you know you have two couples and it's like yeah oh, they wouldn't totally not be together you know they're very frigid when talking to each other but they came off very natural i i also think you could tell that they were comfortable with one another because you tries to stick the camera into the bathroom with her <laughs> yeah which is a great use for a fifteen thousand dollar camera <laughs> i love how she's continued screaming at him about it too like okay you can go now skin but of course, as as every dude that has a camera thinks, it's like uh, I know what we can use this camera for, and the girls immediately like, yeah, I, you'd think that, <laughs> but you know. So, uh, but that no, does set up a lot of uh, some cool character moments for them, and I think that's you know the first ten or fifteen minutes of this are just them kind of screwing around the house. Like there's nothing happens. Like there there's nothing going on. You wonder why this movie's called Paranormal Activity because there's nothing paranormal about it until later on. It, it is it is the setup though. You watch any found footage film, you know Cloverfield. You got the whole party scene in the beginning. Yep. Blair Witch. You got them kind of screwing around, going to talking to. All of a sudden, like, just have it set up right in the bedroom and recording. You know what's going on. You got to you got to get to know the characters a little bit, even though it's you know trying to be like a full documentary found footage. You still got to go through the whole three. You know of your you know introduce the characters, get to know them a little bit because if you're seeing people that are you know you don't know or don't really have any type of connection to, answer that they'll go through later have a connection to them, the film's not going to work. Well, I, I think that's that's just it, is so many of these films just throw you into the stuff so quick that you don't you don't really have time to invest in anyone, and it's pretty clear that it's going to be Katie and Mika the whole time. And we're, we're basically in the house the whole movie. So, I mean, it's, it's in one house. They actually shot this in a real house, right? Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. and, and it actually went up for sale uh, earlier this year. Oh, wow. I, I bet it 
fetches a pretty penny, uh, just because it's in San Diego. So more than anything. Yeah, it's a thirteen hundred. It's a thirteen hundred square foot house, and it's probably going for like eight hundred thousand dollars in San Diego. Yeah, yeah, easily. So yeah, for I, sure. I actually looked up. I looked at the real estate listing. Uh, four bedrooms, two and a half baths, swimming pool. $765,000 or so. Wow, pretty good. You, you almost had it, but you went over, so you don't get to play the next pricing game there, Nick. But uh, nice try. We have some party. Yeah, but you got to add about your choices. So <laughs> yeah, I, you know. yeah, this is true. I think it I think it ended up going for over a million, though. The, uh, yeah. The the 765 was just the list price. I can I can believe it, but it's a cute. But I, even though it's it's a that sounds very spacious. Like I I don't live in a house that big. You know, if that sounds like a lot of room to me, and I haven't lived in a place that big ever in my life. So it, that sounds huge. But the one thing this film does, and I think every good horror film has to do this, is there's some sense of confinement. Even the Blair Witch Project. They were in the woods, but there was confinement because they were lost. They essentially walked in circles for three or four days. And and I think that that's what this movie does a good job of is keeping us in this house and these it's got these big ceilings and it's you know, it's there's none of these small rooms or anything, but it feels so confined. And I I, I like that and and I know it's a, a product of the budget and some of that other, but that's one thing about this film that I think works. They they work the space well and Orrin Pelly's good at it. Now, now, did I read this right? It, was Mika Sloat like an actual cameraman at one time in his life? Yes, he was a cameraman uh, for his college television station, which is probably why he's the guy who runs the camera the entire time. I was going to ask, does he actually shoot this film, or is it just him standing by whoever's doing it? No, he's holding the camera. Oh, that's pretty cool, because I, I, that's one of the things about Cloverfield, the actor that is behind that camera ends up like he ends up shooting about two thirds of that film. Like did they wasn't it you mean T J Miller? Is that T J Miller? I never put that together, but that he's Hutch? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> or HUD. Oh wow. That's well, good to know. But yeah, he ended up shooting a lot of that. And that's cool to know though that he shot a lot of this. And so um I'll say again though, the smart thing they do here is there's there's not a lot of the jerky movement or running around. And when he like, you know, when he starts to drop the camera and point to the ground so he can talk or whatever to her, it shuts off. And I love how it'll just shut off in the middle of things. And you know, we pick up at other things and it just sort of transitions from place to place. I think that's uh, the benefit to having the nice camera stability. Yeah. Um, control. Mm, good point. So, guys, let's talk about the activity in paranormal activity, if you will. I mean, at that's a lot of it is just, you know, noise and sounds and, you know, sub do you see that over there? What over where, you know, and people reacting to things that aren't there. And I, I give a lot of credit to our two actors here who were amateur actors at this point. They weren't professionals. I mean, they were trying to break in and get sad cards. That's why they took this job, but they, they didn't have any experience doing something like that. And I dare say they pull that off pretty good. I mean, I've seen that done badly. Go watch the Star Wars prequels. Ewan McGregor struggles for three films looking at things that aren't there, you know, and that's not his fault. And I don't yeah, blame just, him. Just go watch uh, Ghost Hunters. I like that they're able to sell us on the activity that's, I mean, a lot of times it's just footsteps and noises. I think it helps that it's really subtle stuff, too. Hmm. Like, I, the for me, the thing that pushes... Um, Strange believability the most is their one expensive shot where they set that Ouija board on fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly that's the most expensive shot in the movie because mm -hmm. they had to burn a, a $15 <laughs> board. Yeah. And somebody had to buy a, one of those little portable uh, fire extinguishers. They probably just borrowed it from whoever had that house. So, I mean, let's be honest. So, yeah. It's probably but, fire code that you have to have that. <laughs> but it, it, it works because it's the movie doesn't rush right into things. Uh, it, it spends so much time building up to these really subtle things that when something actually happens, it's like setting a, a dry wood on fire. Mm. And it kind of you, if you've ever tried to light a fire, you know, it kind of will kind of smolder for a while and flare up and maybe die back down if you're terrible at lighting fires like I am. Enough things happen so that you start to pay more attention and look for things that aren't there. I think that's one of the, the factors about this that really works. And it's one of those reasons I said watching this at home may be better experience because you can spend time rewatching it and looking in the background. 
you know, and looking for what's not there and stuff. The funny thing about this one is that I was going to tell you folks, there's nothing there. <laughs> this was shot for 15 grand and five of that was on post-production. So this was shot for $10,000. There wasn't anything there. It just, it's so unnerving. And I think part of that is that there's no score to this at all. No music, nothing. That's a bold choice too, because, you know, I, I, I famously t- retold the story that John Carpenter tells that he you know showed a cut of Halloween to an executive without the score on it. And she's like, this is the most boring movie I've ever seen in my life. These people are just standing around popping popcorn. And then he put the score over it. It scared the crap out of, you know, to have a horror movie that can invoke creepiness and unnerving without a score is a real feat. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with just the whole, you know, when the camera's shooting at night, just the way that shot and the way it looks. Yeah. It's it's very just, you know, kind of creepy in a way. And it's also, it's it's playing off your expectations. You know, it, this movie does have the classic slow, but it's always, you have a camera just sitting there. You watch any movie, you know, whether it's, you know, a $250, $250 million movie or, you know, $10,000 movie, is that normally you got a long shot. Mm-hmm. You're expecting something to happen. And that's what it plays with on every time it's in the bedroom is it just sits there and... It just is very, very, you know, the first time it's happening, really nothing, you know, happens. But then each time, it, it, each scene that, that that occurs in, you're getting just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And it's, like I said, it's just, it's a slow burn. It's just, it's teasing the audience. And I think that's what, why it works very well, is just when you mix in that slow burn, the audience expectations, and then just how it looks, it really does give a creepy factor to it. Exactly. I mean, they both the actors have talked about in a lot of the supplemental material and in interviews and things is that so, you know, they were so proud that this is practical effects, you know, except for the, the end shot with the, uh, uh, you know, face change for Katie there. This is all practical effects. And they, you know, they say Orin is one of those guys that just works magic. He can just work movie magic with fishing line and stuff, you know, shutting doors and all those kind of things. And, uh, you know, one of the best things to me is when they drag Katie down the hall. I mean, that is, I, I, I still don't know how they pulled that off, but it looks great now. That is a really cool scene, and she reacts the way someone being drug out of their bed out of a dead sleep would react. That was really well done. One of the things that's the best is when they fast forward through, like, Katie standing at the bedside. Oh, yeah. And she, you can see how still she is. She's moving very little, but he's tossing and turning, and it just makes it even creepier because her movements are so subtle. It looks like she's actually standing there for two hours. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's all the little timer trick in in the bottom. But still, they had to shoot you know three or four or five minutes of footage. It's hard to stand still and just stare at somebody for five minutes and not you know shift your weight, move your feet, you know whatever. She does a great job of it. I I give a lot to of credit to Katie because she has to sell the scares. Mika has to do a lot of dialogue when he's not on screen. So his voice does a lot of his work, but she has to sell the haunting because what we're watching essentially is that, and what we learn through the interactions with the psychic and some other things is that even if they leave, it would go with her, which I'm like, Oh, that's the idea for insidious right there. I'd never caught that before, but there it is. And I, I love that we're watching someone become haunted and essentially fall apart in front of us. And I, she does a good job of selling that. And just really, I mean, near the end there, when before she goes completely evil and, and kills him, she looks rough. And, you know, that's it's and that's with no real makeup artists or effect. That's just her, you know, not coming her hair you know, one day and all in her eyes. And uh, the, the stunts of her standing up, though, by the bed are, are creepy for sure. Yeah. Well, if you're, well, we're married. We know what it's like waking up when they're not wearing makeup. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to get you know, but but to kind of delve a little bit more into the movie and the plot aspect of it, I think you know, you know, even just in the beginning of the movie, um, you bring in this third character there. You bring in this um, paranormal investigator, right? This guy who comes into the house, and you know, of course, he's he's the Tangia of the movie, you know, from Poltergeist, and. Mm-hmm. He seems to have, you know, all, all the answers. I think it was a little bit convenient, you know, right away. He's like, oh, this is a, this is a demon. This is, you know, a demon and everything. And, uh, 
you know, but it did kind of add a little bit of a creepy factor into there because very seldom. I mean, you watch these ghost movies; they don't ever label it like a demon. It's always, you know, an, an entity or a poltergeist or something like that. So it kind of was a little bit intriguing. You know, when you know this is my first time watching it, so I decided to wait until about eleven thirty at night, <laughs> and I watched it in my bedroom so to get the full effect. And you know, I think really that really added a lot more to the you know experience. I don't think if you watch this on like a Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon, it's going to really work as well as, you know, watching it in the pitch dark in your bedroom. I think that's kind of the perfect thing back to what you're saying, Jay, not better at home. And I, I totally believe that, but the things though, you know, I'm going to stop complimenting the movie. I don't want to sit there and just, you know, talk about how great it is. Cause this movie does have problems. Oh yeah. One of the, you know, the problems that I had in there was, you know, going back to that paranormal investigator, how he had all the answers and, you know, he, completely useless guy he didn't help them out at all and i think yeah. he actually made it worse because you get kind of about you know two-thirds of the way in and shit's really hitting the fan and they call this guy back in and he's like well i don't even want to be here i'm just making it work. Uh, that's like, one of the things i was going to say that's one of the things that really worked for me is he walks in the house he's like oh i don't want to deal with this bye and then he <laughs> flees yeah like he doesn't just leave like he runs Coward, though no, but I like that, though, because if it, I'm with you, Nick. When we first meet him, this guy annoyed the piss out of me because I'm like, well, if you know so dang much, why don't you do something and go to the further and, you know, tell him to leave her alone or whatever? You know, I'm using forward knowledge for that. But I'm like, come on, man, you can't you can't do any better than that. But when he comes back in, that's when he sells it because he's scared out of his mind. I, I like that. I thought that was really well done to me, though, it's. He totally seems like he's full of shit when he gets in there the first time. And then he comes back and he's like, he's got like this like premonition or you can feel it. He just like this, you know, like, a, like that show ghost hunters. He's just some guy who's full of shit. <laughs> and maybe like something happens with him or something that actually scares the shit out of him. And he gets out of the house. I just, I didn't like it though. when he told him, it's like, well, you can't leave. It's just going to follow you. I'd be like, well, Shit, I'm still leaving. You know, let this let this thing follow me. You know, I'm driving. I'm getting the hell out of here. And that was my big issue with the movie was they don't leave. Yeah. And when she's sitting there and she's like literally looks like she's ready to looks like she is severely ill. Mm -hmm. And he the boyfriend, I mean, what a freaking idiot. He doesn't even do anything about it. It's like, oh, let's just go back to bed. They had all this shit happen to him, you know, between, you know, finding the picture in the attic, which was a really good scene. And all this other stuff, it's like, get out of there. Let's, get out of there. You know, it's like, get out of Dodge. You know, they didn't set it up at all. Like, all oh, these people don't have a family. They got no other place to go. Or, you know, maybe it would have been better if it would have, you know, not been in douchey San Diego. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, let's step back just a second, though, because you, you mentioned we've, we've kind of glossed over some of the activity. I want to talk about those two big things. We, we talked about Katie standing up beside the bed and getting drug out of the bed. Mika is the one that's like they have different ways of wanting to deal with this. She wants to call the it demonologist. Yeah, the, she wants to do the demonologist and all that. And he wants to run all these little tests like he sets up the talcum powder in the floor and then they catch footprints. You know, and then you know, he hears something in the attic and he goes up there to check it out and he sees that picture of her that's burnt on four corners and then she gets bit. And I mean, that that is some freaky stuff. It takes forever for this guy to get mad enough to say, screw it, we're leaving. Like to me, I, I would have left a lot, a lot sooner. But part of me thinks that's supposed to tell us who he is. He feels like he can just fix it if he just spends enough time on it and it's pissing him off that he can't fix it. He's not doing anything, though. I mean, what does he do? He Googles a story on online and finds some lady that had the same thing to happen, and she died. So mm -hmm. his, his, his solution is, let's keep on doing the same stuff over again, and it's going to get better. I mean, that's the definition of insanity. But he, but he doesn't come off like he's insane. He just comes off like he's a bag. But biggest douchebags get the hell out of there, at least for themselves. You know, I'd be like, all right, the girl, <laughs> see you later. I'm out of here. But that never crosses their mind until like the very, very end. And that was just kind of driving me, driving me crazy. It was like, there's freaking footprints in the talcum powder and you guys are not getting in your car and leaving. Mm. What the hell is wrong with you? Even if it's not a ghost, there's somebody in your house. There might be somebody there. There might be a little midget dressed as a freaking, you know, bunny rabbit in her freaking stuffed animal collection. <laughs> That's one, you know, the conceit really kind of wore off on me. It's like, okay. I'll take the camera. I'll take them doing this. Okay, it's set up really well. It's, it, it has some sense to it. 
But when all this other shit's happening, when she gets bit, and they just don't leave the house, I just I can't give the movie that. To me, it just that then it started feeling full. This place is going to have to burn down around me before I leave it, <laughs> because I've sunk my savings into this place, and even though I don't have day trader money. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to stick it out through every possible infestation, be it demon or cockroach. <laughs> but you think, though, you know, when, they, when you see the footprints in there, call the cops. You know what I mean? I mean, at that point, they really don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're like, you know, they think it's a ghost, but logic would say, okay, there's something going on here. Maybe we need to kind of step up and get some other people involved here, you know, whether it's calling the police or doing something. Besides just doing the same damn stuff. And it's not like they're changing anything. They're well, just they, doing the same damn stuff again. Well, they do try to contact the demonologist, but he's out of town. Right. Nick, I, I see what you're saying, and I think it's valid criticism. I'm going to tell you why I didn't. it didn't bother me, and it's never bothered me about this. And it goes back to our two actors. Because while that all is going down, those two are at each other's throats. And not in like a fake Hollywood couple kind of way. Like, they're having real people fights. You know, and I, I I like it when Katie's very much the sweet one and kind and stuff, and she's got a pretty long fuse for, for Mika and stuff, and he seems to be a little more of the hothead. But when she gets mad, you know it. Like, she is pissed. Like, every other word is F and F you, and just, like, she's just pissed. And then she just breaks down and starts bawling, and he runs in there to, you know, be with her, and they make up, and they, you know, they talk talk through it. I, it's the couple moments they get me through the times when this movie is kind of slow. Cause there are, there's a lot of time when nothing is happening and you're like, come on, do something, get out of the house, call the cops. If it were left to lesser performances, I would feel the same way. But because I get invested in our characters and in the actors, I don't feel that way. I'm on board with it and I feel for them. I really do. And just like Ron said too, you know, they're young and they got money, but this is their house, damn it. And especially the way Mika is about his stuff. He's like, I ain't leaving this. This is my house, man. No way. You don't, you don't, I always keep saying, you come in my house and F with my girlfriend. You know, and he keeps saying all that like he's some big badass. And I'm like, please, this guy blow over in the wind. But he he's doing that man thing, that macho shit. And I, I liked it. I thought it was cute. And it it gave it gave a, a realness again to that relationship that got me through the slow parts of it. Jay, if your wife got dragged out of her bed by some type of invisible <laughs> entity and got bit on the side, are you telling me you guys are going to spend another night there? Or are you guys going <laughs> up to freaking you know Tennessee to get with you know go stay at some relatives' house? No, no, no we would. Honest, what, what, what are no, you doing? No, we what would be going. Doing? We'd be going to see relatives. But the thing that has been set up here, and we haven't said it, we don't know anything about Mika's family at all, and we don't know that Katie has any family. Now we'll learn a lot about that in subsequent sequels, but we don't know that in this movie. So, like Ron said, we don't know what these people's lives are, and even if they have family, maybe they're far away from them. They can't get to them easy. And they're also doing. Just drop a line. That's all they got to do is just drop a line. It could be that she's sitting there going, I want to go. And and he could just be a total douchebag and go, fine, you can leave. But I stay in here. They do mention her mother Mm -hmm. in a negative way. Right. And they do mention her sister, but they don't say where her sister is or where her sister is located. They just mention that she has or had a sister. Right. Like, you don't get the sense that Katie comes from a great you know, home background, because she talks about, look, I had some weird stuff like this happen when I was younger. It's not funny. It's, I know you think it's cute, but it's, it's not. And I don't want to want to, you know, I don't want to play around with this stuff. And whereas Mika is more of the, he's, he's wanting to figure it out and just, you know, explain it the way he's the skeptic in, in every possible way. And, you know, we know nothing about his family at all, except that they get a credit, you know, a faux credit in the beginning. So, I, I I took it as much. I, in the real world, yes, I'm with you, Nick. I I myself would get up and leave, go somewhere else or whatever. But even they come to that at the end. They're like, let's go to the hotel. F this. Let's go. And then that's when she turns. And that's when the movie gets strange. You know, because it's like, wait a minute, what? And she says something about, we'll be all right here. And the way she says it doesn't make me think she's including him in that we. You know, it's all in her eyes. But I, I every time I've watched this, I'm like, oh, she's possessed. You know, and yeah, I, I think that's what we're supposed to believe happens, right? Yeah, but you know, just you know, back to the whole thing about also. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If it wasn't set in like how you know, wasn't set in California, or maybe it's in the winter, and mm-hmm. they just leaving's not feasible. You know, this you know, this bad snowstorm, something like that, where it's the just giant. not feasible. Or 
yeah, or may, maybe it's like in a remote, remote area where, you know, they're out in like some rural area or something. And it's like, we got an hour and a half drive to get to anybody or a two hour drive or something like that. Or even being like my situation where the nearest family member, so, you know, 14 hours away. I mean, right. just, you know, you know, maybe just a change of scenery or just, a, you know, just some type of explanation as to why, because to me, it's just like, you know, the whole discussion of them leaving was probably like three scenes too late for me. Let's keep in mind, we're dealing with a guy who a psychic walks in your house and tells you there's a demon. Your girlfriend <laughs> has dealt with this kind of thing before and says it's not a joke. And you go out and buy a Ouija board. Yeah. He said he didn't buy it, though. He just borrowed it. <laughs> that, that's a lie. That's it. Wait till the statement comes in at the end of the month. That's bullshit. <laughs> Who's going to loan you such a nice Ouija board? Uh, yeah, he went to Spencer's and bought that. <laughs> Come on. That's like the Brookstone of Ouija boards. Well, yeah, that's a, ni- that's a nice Ouija board. It gets totally trashed, by the way. But anyway, Not that I would know a lot about Ouija boards. So <laughs> it's, it's the Lin Shea signature model. Yeah. <laughs> Probably so. This is a guy for who giving up and leaving is not an option. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. He talks about taking a, a hit in the, taking a hit in the market and like, don't worry, I'll make it back. You know, like he's he's the eternal optimist. And he's also the kind of guy who's going to set up all night with a baseball bat waiting to bash a demon in the face. Right, exactly. I, I mean, the demon that he can't see, by the way, but you, you live your dream. So... <laughs> Uh, I do like the the ending. We got to talk about the ending here, and I I will talk about the alternate endings in a sec, and whether or not those would have worked better. The ending of this is probably the best scene of the Katie stands and stares at the bed bit, uh, and it just goes on and on and on. It's like three hours of it that's supposed to pass by that she just stands there staring at him, and I kept waiting for her to lunge at him or do something. Like I didn't. I again, you having seen when I saw this the first time, I had no idea where that was going to go. Straight. I thought I thought she was good. I thought she was gonna strangle him or something like that. Or yeah, it was just very weird that she was just kind of standing there staring at him. But I think that was you know it was an effective scene. I mean it was very creepy, especially how they fast forward you know showing the time lapse on there and just kind of how her just like slight slip, uh, sways almost almost look like a, almost like she's having like a seizure or something like that standing there. It was yeah, a very effective scene. That's what this movie does so well. It turns nothing into something to be worried about. Yeah. You're you're watching her stand there and you're waiting for something bad to happen. And when it finally does, it's still like a really effective jump scare. And she's uh Katie Featherstone is doing great physical work. I uh, no, I I agree. And then she finally walks downstairs and we hear that blood curdling scream that pulls him out of a dead sleep, runs downstairs and then you hear more screams. And then he gets flung back toward the camera, and she comes walking toward it, you know, holding the knife all bloody. That, that to me, I was like, that's the perfect moment of, you, you don't show me what happened, you just show me the aftermath of it, and it totally works and freaks me out. I love that. And the, the way she walks back into the room is really unsettling, too. Just something about the way she's putting her feet on the on the floor it's like she's being puppeted almost is what it looks yes like. yeah i i've got that sense of it too i was like she's being led yeah it's, it's, it's very animalistic it's not mm-hmm. it's not a natural way of you know how a person would walk it's almost like a almost like a just almost like an animal you know just kind of like walking and she like goes up to him and it's like almost like she, um or something i mean yes yeah, like, make sure he is dead yeah and then she that evil grin into the camera that they you know, morph her face through or whatever. That was great. I, now, did either of you see the alternate endings? Nope. Didn't even know there was alternate endings. Doesn't, doesn't surprise me, though. Yeah. Ron, did you see either of them? Yes, I've seen both of them. Yeah. I, you know, there's the one where she comes back upstairs and sits and just sort of like rocks back and forth on the floor. And you hear a friend come downstairs and scream and run away. And basically the cops come upstairs and shoot her when she comes at him with the knife. And there's that one, and then what, there was one more too, and I've never seen the second one. What's the other one? It's uh, she. It was online um, bef- when the movie came out. Uh, she basically takes the knife and cuts her own throat. Oh wow! Like she comes flying in, she stomps back into the room carrying the knife. She sits down in front of the camera, and then she just cuts her throat and dies. 
I see that that's that's a real downer. I I like the fact that she just disappeared and you don't know where she is. Like that to me is much more unnerving than either of the other two. Um, I don't know why they would have gone with the other two. Is there any story as to how that happened or came about? Uh, one of them is the original. I think the cop one is the original the, ending. Yeah, the cop one. That's what I understand. Is like Spielberg's the one that told him to change the ending, right? Like he's the one that gave him the the one that we see, right? Yes. Okay. And the other one is a different ending Paramount wanted. <laughs> well, they were real wrong on that. Um, yeah. Let, I'll say this. How about that? Steven Spielberg sees your film at a festival and says, hey, you know, it'd be better, guys, if Katie just, you know, disappeared. <laughs> and you go, yeah, I, you, could, you could do a sequel to it then. <laughs> Which is, I mean, no, for, no one makes just a movie, it's franchises. Hey, he, the man's a businessman. <laughs> All right. He understands. <laughs> What's going on? So I, I'm glad that he said that, though, because he's right. That that leaves oh. the ambiguous ending. If, if Michael Myers is still on the ground at the original Halloween, it's satisfying, but it's much better than when Loomis looks over the ledge and he's not there, right? Yeah, I'm, the, the whole movie, though, the ending, I mean, it totally is the same ending as the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> it's the exact same ending. I had guy with the camera that. gets attacked. You see his face. No one knows what happened to him. Uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Well, guys, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for paranormal activity? Nick? I am going to go with a medium popcorn. Um thought it was an effective film. It was, it was well made. But I do have some issues with how the plot kind of goes along and the, some of the, you know, some logic errors that I think, you know, the characters were making. Um, but overall, it's, it's a good movie. I mean, I enjoyed it. I did watch it twice. Um, not going to win Father of the Year for saying this, but I did watch it with my son. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a movie I'm, I'm probably not going to watch again, but I am glad that I watched it. I'm glad that I watched it again. But, to me, it's just kind of one of, I was going to say, it's just kind of a throwaway experience, but glad an experience, though, I'm glad I had. I'm going to give it a large popcorn. It's not my favorite of the Paranormal Activity series, but it is a really good, really effective that uses uh, found footage. Go back to really good, really effective. <laughs> yeah. Really good, really effective movie that uses found footage in probably the best way. There's a reason it kicked off this whole genre resurgence. There's a reason there are so many sequels. And it's really kind of unfortunate that neither of these people really does any other work acting-wise. Well, okay, Katie's in these. I mean, and she was on some TV show for a little while. I don't think Mika's done anything else, but... Well, I'm going to say large popcorn as well, mostly because I think that like a lot of good horror movies and a lot of good first entries in a series, there's things to come back to here. And it's really all around the characters. And if it weren't for the performances you get out of Katie and Mika, I don't think it would have worked as well. So I, I'm going to go large popcorn. This is a fun one. I, I had a lot of fun with this movie and I'm glad to, to revisit it. It's not one I want to watch all the time. It's definitely one of those that you know, every couple of three years, it's worth popping back in and checking on. It's not my favorite of the series either, Ron, but it is one that I do happen to really like, and I think works on a lot of levels. Now, it's got its problems. It's not perfect. We, I've praised this movie a lot. It's definitely got its flaws, but if you'll go with it and just get in with the characters, I think you'll enjoy the film for what it has to offer, and I think it does have a lot to offer. So I'm going to go large popcorn, and I want to ask you two one final question here as we go into this. You know, did you see a franchise in this? Did you see the possibility of sequels or, you know, is are they going to stretch it out too long? You know, what do you hope for in part two and beyond? Uh, for me, um, I think this would work fine as a standalone movie. I mean, yeah, everything today has got to be a franchise. You got to have sequels. You got to have spinoffs. You got to have universe building. You got to have all that junk. But I just, it can, you know, them you can make sense you can give it to the film but to do this again in this type of way i just don't see how that can work and i haven't seen any of the sequels yet so i i don't know i'm you know maybe it does work well but 
for me, it's just, I don't know how it's going to work. I mean, is it going to be something where it's a completely different family trying to do the same thing? Is it going to be something like security footage? You know, to me, it's just, it, it might be just too much to see movies kind of done in this fashion again, because what works one time, I don't think it's going to work, work another time. I definitely saw this uh, becoming a franchise, if only because it costs no money and it made enough to push Saw out of Halloween. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, plus there are a Saw lot kind of, of different... pushed itself off, though, too. Well, <laughs> well but to, to be fair, though, and he's making a good point, the Saw franchise had been the most profitable horror franchise ever up to that point. I mean, those things were, were massive hits every time, and they it ran was, scared. But, uh, what, what, but you look at when those came out, though. It was that was the only thing that came out around Halloween. Well, no, no, true, true, true. But they had kept the, the one thing the Saw films have is a pretty interesting continuity. But go, go ahead, Ron. This went up against Saw and ate its lunch. Mm-hmm. Even though Saw was on its last legs, this was fresh enough and vital enough to overcome a ton of problems, but like behind the scenes development hell type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Steven Spielberg saw something in it. Who am I to say there's nothing there for a second movie if Steven Spielberg thinks it's worth it? I, I will be curious. <laughs> <A> crystal Skull. <laughs> well, we all have our mistakes, right? <laughs> that's, that's George Lucas. Temple of Doom. <laughs> uh, that is, Jurassic those are, Park Lost World. <laughs> those are Lucas films, and, and Lost World can be blamed on a lot of other things that we're not going to get into in this retrospective. But I am curious to see where they go, because Nick, I, I, I'm, almost, I'm like splitting the middle of you two guys. I see how there could be things there, but I'm with you, Nick. When they came out with the second one, I thought, well, how are you going to sell me on found footage again? Like, how are they going to do it? And I, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but that conceit gets more and more interesting every time they do it. And I I actually will say it's it's one of the more endearing the parts of this. Or something? No, it's, I'm not going to kill it for you. You'll just have to watch and see. But teddy, teddy bear nanny cams? Like <laughs> the, in second, the, second one, the second one is interesting in that it works as a prequel, during, and sequel. It's kind of all three at once. So, so it is related at all. We, we will get to that next time. It's the only minor spoiler I'll give you, because I, I am curious to have somebody that's brand new to all of this. And, you know, Ron and I know what's coming. You have no idea. So this, this is going to be fun. But we'll talk about that next time on the show. Folks, as always, you can find more shows on our website. Catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter as well. And let us know what you think. We always appreciate your support and interaction. Until next time, for Nick and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.